0: For almost three centuries, Sotheby's has been the place to discover the greatest stories of creativity. We've been the temporary custodians of some of the world's finest treasures, which you can see on display in our galleries on any given day. Welcome to Sotheby's Talks, the podcast that celebrates art, culture, and collecting. I'm Marina Ruiz-Colomer, and I want to invite you inside the world of Sotheby's, a place where you can find the extraordinary including contemporary art, old master paintings, rare books, jewelry and memorabilia. I am a specialist in Sotheby's contemporary department, and throughout my career I have championed the work of female artists. In 2021, I co-organized the first cross-category sale of work by women at Sotheby's. In the last few years, we have seen the demand for work by female artists increase dramatically, but there is still work to be done. So on this podcast, we're sharing some of the conversations we've been holding with our experts, along with tastemakers, collectors, and luminaries from the world of art and culture. Edward Munch pioneered expressionism and embraced life's most painful experiences to create art. His pursuit of emotional truth changed art forever. Tracy Emin, who has been a major figure in contemporary art for more than 25 years, has always been fascinated by the Norwegian master. In this episode, originally recorded at Sotheby's in London, Emin sat down with Sotheby's Simon Shaw to talk about the role of women in Munch's work and to explore why his paintings still have such a compelling hold on us today.
1: Good evening, my name's Simon Shaw. A special welcome to our guest tonight, the incomparable Tracy Emin. Tracy, I'm thrilled that you're here with us to get stuck into Munch and women. So as we're talking about Monk and women, it seems like Monk's mother is probably a good place to start. That's the beginning. Monk loses his mother at the age of five. He nearly dies as well as a, a child. His sister Sophia, who he's very close to, he loses at the age of fourteen. So from from the outset, there's a kind of connection between love and loss and a, an abandonment that he grows up with. This picture, incidentally, the sick child. This is a, a painting from 1885 that his first masterpiece, really. Uh, another version of, of this one is the only monk in a British public collection. Yeah. Um, actually, the, the father of the owner of this wonderful picture, which we'll get onto over here, Thomas Olsen, gifted the sick child to the Tate in 1939 as a, a, a gesture at a moment when German museums were throwing out Monks' work as degenerate under the, uh, under the Nazis. And so he gave it as a gesture, an anti-fascist gesture. No other museum in the UK has one, which is kind of sad, I think.
2: Really sad.
1: Mm. So let's all encourage uh, Munch's profile, I think here and, and elsewhere. So this is the sick child. Um, and this kind of sets Munch off on a course that early on in his career, he decides he's going to be painting emotion. He's gonna be painting feeling rather than what things look like. And he, he comes up with this manifesto early on where he says enough pictures of, of interiors with people sitting and reading and knitting. I'm gonna paint real people That Feel and breathe and suffer and love, and that really becomes the that really becomes the grand project of, of Monk. That he's going to create the journey, which is the modern life of the soul at this moment in the 1890s, where so many roles are being uh, are being rethought and the world is is remaking itself. He's going to chart the journey of the uh, of of the contemporary soul. So more than anything else, the, the Freeze of Life, which is his great project, this, this, The Scream and Madonna and Vampire and all the great uh, monk images there, come from this thing called The, the Freeze of Life, um, which is about life, sex, and death, effectively. It's about the, the big stuff. But more than anything else, it's about women, and it's about relationships between the sexes. I don't know what you think, Tracy, but it struck me that, that his, his art is probably more about women than than anything else actually more yeah. about gender than anything else the what other, do you think
2: yeah the other week someone very stupidly put on instagram that oh monk was such an amazing painter it's just so unfortunate that he was so sexist and mis- mm. misogynistic and i come flying here to his defense i said no mm. no no monk absolutely adored respected and loved women and there's always these, these classics he put women so high on a pedestal like almost untouchable. And there's really nice things about all his models and the people who, who he painted. He never fucked them. So most models then... Oh, he
1: did? Some of them did. Yeah,
2: well, you know, you're, OK, you're, some you're, of you're, them, right? Sorry, sorry. Some of them, OK? <laughs> but, hey, not
1: all of them. <laughs> <laughs> OK, you no. can have that. Yeah, yeah I'll go have that one,
2: no. <laughs> no, no, he... he it, what I'm saying is he wasn't, He just he didn't just presume that the person sitting in front of him that he was painting naked mm. he was going to have sex with. He didn't, and he wasn't like that. And everybody who worked for him, he treated with real mm. respect and everything. He wasn't just like some sort of posh, upper-class trap painting mm. pictures of patterns, you know. He really was into people and, under, and having empathy and understanding people. And a lot of his emotions were actually quite feminine and he was very open about them and it was a kind of fashion at the time to be open about your emotions, your dreams, you know, whether it was Freud, Jung or any of this, any of those kind of, uh, that new age of psychology or whatever. But Munch was way ahead of all of that. He was doing it on his own. He was genuinely interested in his own feelings and being open and, and being emotionally open. Mm. Now, this is where me and the whole room and Simon are going to disagree. I think Munch had a hang-up with women because he was homosexual. Sure.
1: We are going to disagree. Yeah. <laughs> do you really tell us about that? What, what do you... He well, was described as being very feminine. Everybody talks about it. If you're in the same room as him, he was kind of quite feminine in his, uh, in his looks and his he presentation. He
2: scrubbed his hands mm. after painting. He always had really well-groomed nails. I'm not saying that makes you gay, right? But what I am saying, <laughs> what I am saying is he really, really cared about his appearance. He really c- cared about his, his, all his portraits of himself when he's younger. He's very kind of like, you know, he's... And also when you look at his... The, the, his monk is really brilliant at painting women Women, like the big subject of women anatomically. Mm. He's good at painting women in some quite realistic ways. But when you get down to the nitty gritty and the sex of it, he was useless. And then when he's drawing men, oh my God, you know, they're like these adornesses, they're standing like this, all proud. You've got all the boy wrestlers, you've got all of this real homoerotic stuff going on in his work again and again and again. Mm. And then you have, the vampire, the this, the that, the femme fatale, everyone, you know, she tried to kill me, whatever it is. And he sort of really romanticises women into these, you know, the witch, the mother, the lover category. He doesn't, he can't seem to have an ordinary relationship with women because he wasn't actually into women that much. Mm. Go on. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, and that concludes this evening, so yes, okay. uh, I, I don't want to say that, but um, I, I think that that's super interesting. But I, I want to take us a little bit on a, on a journey from like, his, his origins through this extraordinary painting here, Dance on the, the Beach, a painting from 1906, 07, which is a, a reworking of a painting called The Dance of Life, one of Monk's greatest pictures It's in the National Gallery in, in Oslo that he paints in 1899, comes back to, as he often does, a few years later. This picture, on the subject of, of women, is particularly critical because it includes the two most important romantic relationships of his life. In the center, Munch is dancing, utterly absorbed, in love, oblivious to the world around, with his first lover, Millie Taulov. And flanked either side, white and, and black, even though they look like different, uh, different characters, are the same woman, Tula Larsen, uh, who was probably his, his greatest love affair. So this picture kind of brings together, I mean, in broad terms, it's an allegory of the cycle of life. Um, white, red, black in, in monk, that's birth and sex and death. It's really a, a story about the way that life um, grows and dies. Um, but it's very specific also about his romantic history here. So let's look at the couple in the middle. First of all, Millie Towlov, why this is so, critical this this stuff and uh, maybe you'll have an opinion I don't know um, Millie towel he lost his virginity too in the woods um, let's have a look um, I need to do a bit of a before and after to talk about monks virginity I hope you'll you'll um, indulge me so this is the before this is an image of Millie towel this is the image of kind of um, sexual allure she's presenting herself she's frontal right against the picture plane she's very alluring this is the before and this is the after? Those are both images of Monk's virginity. That's what that's what happened. I don't know quite what to ask you about, other than how you sort of <laughs> oh yeah, this is how Monk sort of remembered his virginity. This set up his sexual life. Those two those well, two images. All
2: right, So this is something I find really interesting. The older woman. She was an older woman. She was not,
1: well, actually, she a, was married too. It was an adulterous,
2: an adulterous older woman. Mm. Okay. But he was 22, he wasn't 12 or 15. She didn't lure him into the woods and and rape him and tuck him up in the gingerbread house or anything. He was a man, he was 22, and he was losing his virginity, question mark. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The other thing is, apparently he felt really guilty why do you think he felt really
1: guilty, Simon? Because she wasn't a man.
2: Because she wasn't a man. Mm. Well, stop. Because he'd been fucking with men, all his youth and adolescence, everything. And then suddenly he thought, oh, God, I've got, got to start doing it with women and get married. This is what, you know, I better start. Oh, she'll show me the way, this older woman in the forest, you know. And look <laughs> what she did to him, this femme fatale. It looks
1: like they had a different experience. Yeah, totally, he
2: yeah. It's like... You know, um, (laughs) and and why did he feel so guilty? Why was it so bad? Or let's just say it's all true and he was a virgin and he was 22. Let's say he wanted to marry himself to his art and he didn't want to have an emotional relationship or physical relationship with anything or anybody. He wanted to have his soul completely free and married to his art. Let's Mm. say that for Simon's sake. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah no, I, I definitely agree with, um, I definitely agree with that. He had a real this, this belief, which was very like common at the time, that, that creativity, that his creativity was somehow kind of sacrosanct, and somehow a woman would, would, would somehow deplete that, which of course we know is absolute rubbish. And as when we go on to talk about Tula Larson, the other lover, um, I think we'll have plenty to say on that subject. But I think here, what, what's important to note is that sex is always in monk. Associated with what? Melancholy, destruction, death. It's all kind of wrapped in the same thing. It's not all. It'd be wonderful if it was all that, but it's not.
2: Yeah, but and when you really look at her, look at her chest and inside and everything, the inside of her doesn't look that attractive. Yeah. You know, it looks like a, a skeleton. It looks skeletal. It looks like death. Actually, the inside. So he was still looking inside the woman, ins- not just the outside, the sexual allure, the, the lust, the, that kind of thing. He he wanted to know more, and that's what he was interested in. But I still think, and I'm not making jokes about it, because I love Mork, I find he was so attractive as well, always have.
1: But you told I, me you wanted to date him at one point. I, would, like-
2: I can in the next world, <laughs> as long as he's... Like, interested in me, so he
1: uh, <laughs> might be
2: angry with me, you never know. So When he
1: hears tonight, he will. Yeah. He's
2: watching. Um, no, I, I, I genuinely think, whatever, he, I think he definitely had an attraction to men because of the later paintings and the paintings of men later on. And I don't mean that the boys, the Adonises and all of that kind of thing. I mean, the, his friends and the people he had, his neighbour he had fights with and this and that. It seems like there was an emotional thing going
1: on as well. So mm. It's
2: not too far fetched what I'm saying.
1: No, absolutely. Absolutely not. Um, so let's see what this does to your, your narrative. So this is the second of Monk's great romantic re- relationships. I think she sounds fantastic. If you're going to go fangirl over Edvard Munch, I'm going to do the same over <laughs> Tula Larsson. Cool. So Munch's a bit older now. He's in his 30s, um, mid-30s when, when he meets um, Tula Larsen. She's around 29, and she's a, a, a sort of bohemian. She's a writer. Um, she's a, a, an artist, actually, as well. But she's, she's the heiress of a, of a great um, fortune. I think he was a wine, a wine merchant in, in Oslo. And here they are in 1899, actually looking very much like a sort of married, respectable couple. But their relationship was a seriously tempestuous one, right? I mean, it, it, was, it was really volatile. It was full of kind of sex and emotion. The, the general dynamic was one would run away saying, ah, I can't commit to you. And she would chase him across Europe and discover him hiding in a hotel room in Hamburg and they'd have sex all night and then they'd get back together. It's a really kind of Volatile, exciting relationship. Sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so she inspires, actually, this the first version of The Dance of Life Mung paints in the middle of this thrall, uh, in, in the thrall of, of Tula Larsen. Um, it's also an incredibly traumatic and destabilizing relationship for him. I mean, he, he, she convinces him to get married. She actually, they, they become engaged, although he later denies it. And she, she sues him and says, no, we, we really we really were engaged and all this stuff. Anyway, in, within the story, this is the moment there. She's looking um, jealously on both sides, Tula at uh, him dancing with Millie Tauloff in and the, the center there. That's the good part of their relationship, the denouement. Do you want to talk about the denouement? This is the denouement of their relationship, yeah. this.
2: So I don't know if, how many people know this, but they had this fight and somehow Monk's finger got shot at the end of the fight. And nobody really, they were very drunk. People heard them shouting and screaming and the gunshot and everything. But nobody ever really knows what happened, whether he was trying to stop her from shooting him, whether he was pulling the trigger, whether he shot himself. But it was enough to end the
1: relationship, Hmm. definitely. He never saw her again. There were lots of bottles of brandy were discovered at the the scene that were empty. Um, And we just, we know that she actually, she lured him there by having somebody call him and say that, that she, she'd attempted suicide. There were bottles of, empty bottles of morphine. So he sort of rushes to her bedside. They have this big drinking session and he ends up shot through the finger and he has an operation there, loses the knuckle on his left hand and so he wears a, a sheath for the rest of his life. Yeah, so, it, yeah. his, his argument to Tullo, I think they were deeply in love personally. His argument to her was that he couldn't commit to a a dependent relationship because he had to give everything to his art. That was his kind of belief. I think the truth is probably also to do with the sense of, you know, loss and attachment from his childhood. He brought a lot of trauma with him. Um, But this is what he told her anyway, that his children, his paintings were his children, and committing to a relationship would somehow mean compromising that art. The irony is that the absolute opposite was true, and that Tula Larson inspired, as a simple look at that picture shows, some of the very best art that that he ever produced.
2: But I'm going to say something here. So you've got the two Tulas, one is white, one is black, one is good, one is evil, one is this, one is that. You know, she could have been quite easily. She could have been bipolar mm. or something. There could have. I think been he a, was too. was Yeah, he was. He, was, yeah. he sub- But also the amount of drugs that he took and drink that he did and everything. He was off his face for the first half of his life completely almost every day it was Mm. like a known thing and then he he decided to go and clean up completely and change his life and his work changed as well but 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 you have to be a bit of a monk aficionado to know that because he was always constantly going back to old subjects reworking Mm. rethinking reanalyzing which is kind of interesting in itself but this is really interesting because the Tula character looks very beautiful, and she's just looking on, wistfully, waiting.
1: But here, so this is during the relationship, right? That's when they're yeah. together. This is 1906, as Tracy's saying, you know, re going back to that subject. At the moment, this is 1906, 07, when he's maximum psych... Cotic, right? this is when he's the maximum level of his addiction. Just after painting this picture, he checks into a clinic in Copenhagen for a year. Um, he doesn't paint very much, but he gets cleaned out. He has a bunch of therapy and things and his work forever changes. So this is the moment of just before that that happens. And you can see that Tuller has changed from being life and death, marriage, and, and uh, the devil, whatever else this is, to here, um she's become this this frontal figure there which is very much it feels like a sort of haunting image of death on the on the right there ironically after he broke up with Tula in 1902 this day when the finger gets shot he gets more obsessed with her than ever and she continues to inspire really great pictures this is one that uh, I've always found this really powerful this is a portrait from 1905, split up with her three years ago, his fingers just about mended, and he saws the painting in half. The reason there's a black line down the middle is Monk sawed that in half. In the Monk Museum, you can see it, but yeah. what do you make of this one? Like, he's re... Yeah, this is the jealousy yeah. series, isn't
2: it? It's like the green, the jealousy, you know? Well, she looks old and unhappy, and he looks angry, and it's also about jealousy.
1: I'm gonna lead on from, from this to yeah, this, this, this is, image. Yeah which is a couple of years later, this is 1907, Munch going back again over the relationship with Tula and casting the relationship between the two of them in the light of David's great French revolutionary picture, the death of Maha, of the, uh, of the revolutionary remarter there. And what he's done is painted, you can see Tuller there and all her red-headed glory, and she's killed him. He's lying dead on the bed and there's, there's lots of blood. Actually, I'm, can I just, Give a slight digression here because one thing that monk is never given credit for is his great sense of humor. Mm. It was a very funny, kind of sardonic, yes, dark humor. You know what he said about this picture? He wrote to Cassira, his dealer in Berlin, and said, I painted a really great still life of fruit today, oranges, <laughs> oranges, and apples, and um, it's as good as anything that Cezanne could have done. Yes. But I tell you what, the only difference is mine has a murderess and her bleeding mm. victim behind it. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it, well, Classic it, it, I don't want to deviate, but <laughs> Monk was really looking at everything that was happening in France mm. with a sort of little bit of kind of envy and paying attention to what was going on everywhere in Europe. Mm. He was, and also Monk was one of the first people in Norway to have a telephone.
1: He was a real technology buff, yep. right? He had everything, the latest, yeah.
2: The latest of everything. The first yep. person to have a Ford motor car, the mm. first person to have this, the first person to have that. He loved technology. So this idea about Mort being this sort of woolly, wild person running across, you know, fields or whatever, mm. is not, I mean, fur and stuff, is not true. He had the best tailor-made suits, he had really beautiful shoes, He had. he had the best of everything. And he was incredibly, yeah, like into, into every kind of technology, the latest camera and paint, mm. the latest colours of tubes of paint. And, and like, if you look at the colours in this, it's, it's now even, it's so vibrant and so alive. You know, he used lots of Daguerre colours, he used lime green, he used shocking pinks, everything. Nobody was using those colours then, nobody at all. So he was really advanced and always thinking, like, pushing himself.
1: And that, that, that's so true. And it, it's, it's this idea that um, Munch doesn't really get the credit for the importance that he has in the, within the, the history of modern art. I mean, there's, there's no Fauvism, there's no Matisse without Munch. There's no German Expressionism, uh, the, the Blaureiter and yeah. the Rucker, There's no Vienna and Schiele and all, like all of these Munch was in tremendously influential in so many ways that perhaps we don't see today for one very important reason which is that most of the monks are in Norway.
2: And, and Munch had, he's, he's a gentle soul within terms of art. He wasn't an aggressive macho bully at all. And also it's like with Picasso, I'm gonna get really in trouble for saying this, I love Picasso, I love his work, but I had this argument with these people. I said, it's not hard to get ahead if you treat half the world like shit, i.e. women. So, and I know Picasso loved women, he loved the women he was with, and he had great love affairs and everything, but as, on the whole, Picasso moved women like this throughout his life. Monk didn't do that. Monk treated women with a lot of respect and a lot of equality in lots of ways.
1: So around 1900, uh, I'm sure many of us know this, there's a lot of rethinking of ideas of gender and you know, new models of femininity and, and, and masculinity at that time that Munch very much plays with. Um, I think the idea of the, the, the decadent man, the sort of the emasculated figure who the relentless female figure, the, the harpy, the virago, the, the vampire, the Lilith, la belle dame sans merci, all, all of these kind of 1890s symbolist, literary things he plays with. And I like this one in particular, the vampire, which he comes back and back to this, this composition, because it seems to encode, like you're saying about women, the ambiguity there, I don't know what you see. Well, let me ask you, what do you see in this picture? What's going on there?
2: What I see that's going on is not what was supposed to be going on. I see this as somebody cradling and protecting. I don't see someone sucking into someone's neck and sucking a load of blood out. I see something completely different.
1: Well, and, that, and that's actually what Monk late in life. He actually, he, he agreed, he did, it was painted as a tender embrace between a loving couple. But friends of his saw it and said, that's amazing. She's sucking the blood out of his neck and the blood, her hair is running like blood streaming over his head. It's a vampire and monk being monk, who was a great self publicist and what another thing he doesn't get credit for, incredible sense of his own self image and marketing. He said, you know what, that's pretty cool, vampire. Okay, let's call yeah, it vampire. But,
2: because vampires were really trendy. Right, exactly. the end. you a, know, yeah, It was like yeah. the idea of Dracula, the vampire, everything, you know, it, it was like really fashionable. Mm. So a monk loved new trendy fashionable mm. things. Mm. So
1: yeah. But it, 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 it comes back to that sense of like, you know, paradox and duality and, and ambiguity that's at the very heart of, of Monk. that it's both. You know, life is birth and sex and death. It's all those things. It's happiness and, and it's sadness. It's a kind of really complex.
2: And when, oh, years ago, like, I don't know, 25 years, 30 years ago, I used to have this little old laundrette on Waterloo Road, and it used to be the Traceum Museum, the perfect place to grow. And I used to just work there, and it was like my studio, but people could come and talk to me, whatever. And one day I had a knock on the door and there was this really nice man and he said he wanted to know why I thought Monk was homosexual. So I said and I gave him all these reasons and he said well there is some truth there but it isn't that he was homosexual but the woman he was in love with was a lesbian and she was my grandmother. And then he proceeded, and he said that he was twins. They were twins, him and his sister, and told me this whole story with lots of facts, lots of information, everything. And then he went away and I never saw him again. So- You didn't get his number? No, I didn't, no, nothing. Well, I think I probably did at the time. We're talking about 30 years ago. But, um, and then this was the other thing in Oslo, when I kept saying to people, yeah, but Monk had children. Everyone goes, no, Monk Mm. never had children never had children never had children so i think there was some there is some things about monk that we still don't know mm. and it's kind of it's all of these things that cross over a kind of interesting. and also i wanted to say this the idea of going to hamburg and being chased across europe and then having sex yeah you know, for 48 hours in, in hamburg, Scott, in Can you hamburg imagine? Yeah. yeah yeah but in, in in 1902 even if you did that now it would be quite shocking do you know what I mean? They were really promiscuously open mm. and driven, and didn't care. Tula Lawson didn't care about losing her virginity, and someone else might not want her or whatever. Mm. She came from a really rich posh family, but she didn't. She didn't care what anyone thought of her. He didn't care. There was this kind of decadence and openness. Of, it was kind of really, sort of really freeing for mm. that time. It was kind of shocking. Well,
1: and in particular yeah. in, in Scandinavia, I mean, the, the Nordic countries where kind of dawning feminism was yeah. was. Women get the vote in, in Norway in 1913. It's one of the first countries to get there. But at this, the time, the 1890s, the early early 20th century, there's a there's a whole lot of discourse about you know gender equality and women's rights and so on, and very much within the cultural elite that Monk is 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 part of. And so that's what I wanted to go on to actually. That's a neat segue because I think while it's true that Monk is very much playing with these stereotypes and archetypes of vampires and harpies and what have you. He paints real women, as well as woman, this, this kind of, the concept, the abstract concept of woman, which is something the male imagination created, all of those vampires and things, they're male products of the imagination. He also paints women, real women who are different and confident and powerful. And this one, the Madonna, not least, is one of the sexiest paintings, great painter of sex. This is probably the greatest painting of sex in whatnot, not, I think, but I think it shows a sexually confident, liberated, strong woman rather than a stereotype.
2: Yeah, definitely. As a real woman, she's really sexy. She looks really good, but it's not, it's not belittling her in any way. Mm. It's actually showing her strengths and her beauty. So that's what I was saying about how Mook was not, he was not sexist. He was not misogynistic. He didn't treat women badly. He treated, there was no little women Mm. in his work anywhere. They were big women, strong women. Even the girls were strong. Even the girls were on a journey. Even the girls knew something that other people didn't. Mm. You know, like three girls on a bridge or whatever. There's always this this
1: strength behind them. Mm. and they're real. You know, he painted. Mm. Yes, he could be guilty of painting a stereotype, but he painted colleagues and family members and friends and lovers and all sorts of different. The women are not kind of boxed into roles. It feels like with them, they're they're looked at as as individuals.
2: Yeah, and even when he did all his portraits of all the wealthy people and all the industrialists, and it wasn't just all these big men with cigars, going, you know, with, with troubas on. He painted all these, you know, strong women, women of culture, women of, who had a lot of gravitas, and and he treated women the same way as he treated men.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so you connected when you were at Maidstone, you, you, you connected with Monk really early on and you identified with him. What was it in Monk that inspired your own practice, has it, done over the years? It
2: was so brilliant with Monk. I've always had this weird thing of being lonely or feeling, believe it or not, on, somehow on the outside. And when I went to Maidstone College of Art, I got in by a fluke. I, had, I didn't have any A-levels or O-levels or foundation, nothing. I just got, I got in on, purely on my work. And when I got there it was a shock for me because everybody was so different and my love of monk helped me in my first year so much because it was like I had a friend, every single book on monk that I had and every image I looked at spoke to me and he was like humanising everything, everything to do with art. So when I was at Maidstone, I left school at 13 by the way so when I was at Maidstone everything was seemed like over intellectualized for me and it was hard for me to grasp and I had no knowledge of art history or anything so Monk cut through all of that everybody understands what it is to be jealous everybody understands what fear is everybody understands what it is to love and I totally related to that and I have carried that through with my work regardless of fashion, regardless of anything. Like back in the 90s when everybody was polishing perspex, I wasn't painting like I am now because I worried there wasn't room for that. But there was definitely room, room for me to express myself emotionally. And I was accused of screaming at the time or being narcissistic. And then if you think now, I was a woman saying, this is how it feels to be a woman. And I was vocal and I was clear about it. Whether I was talking about rape, her paying abortion, whatever the... You think abortion, you know? I was making work about abortion 30 years ago, saying people don't understand what it is for a woman to have an abortion. This is how it feels. And I was completely derided and put down for that. And my work was not shown. Oh, I wonder why, you know? Whereas now, I think that there's a really big rise in people wanting to grasp emotions within art Wanting art to touch them, wanting to feel something. We're heading so fast into the age of determinism in the worst possible way that we possibly can. That emotions and feelings are they're so important that we have to keep them, and we have to look after them, and we have to express them, and not be afraid about it. Now is the time for monk. Monk is rearing up, and he is coming and coming and coming. Now is his moment because people can relate to it, and people go. Yeah, he he was jealous or he loved or he hated or he feared. It's okay to have those emotions.
1: Mm. So And well, I mean, you he like like you was was criticized for overexposing for for over over sharing. But but for him, I think the 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 painting it was certainly cathartic for himself to really, you know, dig into to his emotions and try and try and understand what was happening. But he also talked about how he wanted his art to be therapeutic for other people. I think that's the point, is that it makes people feel less alone, yeah. that these things have been felt before, these very difficult, very emotional subjects. We all live that, and we need to be openly able to express it.
2: Yeah, I was, on the, I was on the news at 10 or whatever, and there was a section of women, and we, we were discussing something to do with women. And at the end of it, they were talking about the fact that we have to pay tax on sanitary products and everything. And my last words were, well, we all bleed. And the next day, across all the newspapers, it says, Tracy and it says, we all bleed. We all bleed. But Mork bled openly. I bleed openly and someone has to do it, it's like a vortex, like a voice, like an expression. Because otherwise, if we don't, society just all gets fucked up and bunged up. And then we have the worst things happening ever. If everyone, all of us could just relieve our emotion and bleed a little bit more, the world would be a much kinder, safer, gentler place. Because we'd be able to express and and like this, you know, people feel like this. It's okay to feel like this. And that is the purpose for me of what art does and, and what it did for Monk and why I relate to him. And I'm not ashamed of it. Whereas I think there's certain aspects of art history or periods of history where you were supposed to be kind of cooler than cool. But I'm not cool. Munch wasn't cool. We are in a Oh, he was. Weird way. Yeah, he was. Yeah. No, but I mean, he didn't go, yeah, he didn't try to hide anything. He didn't try
1: to. He do, was cool and hot. It's yeah, like both, really, Rob, uh, both, yeah, both, really and hot, gay. Yeah, yeah and gay. So yeah.
2: Yeah. No, he yeah. served everyone. He was. Yeah. Monk's just yeah. said, I love you all. Yeah. <laughs> but
1: I love what you just said, and it reminds me that Monk said in a very pithy way, a, a beautiful summary of what you just said, where he said, Art is our life's blood. Right, literally, these paintings are, they're bled out of it, right? That he, he uses that putting himself out there in an incredibly kind of vulnerable way. I think we can learn a lot from. Tracy, we can talk for hours, I'm sure. But Tracy Emin, thank you very much you so indeed. Much. It's been a great pleasure.
0: This was Sotheby's Talk Season 1. Thank you for joining us. To step further into the world of Sotheby's, you can visit any of our galleries around the world. They're open to the public. For more information, visit sotheby's.com. And don't forget to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Season 1, which features conversations with guests including Marina Bramovic, Mary McCartney, Tracy Emin, Paloma Picasso, and Julianne Moore, is now live.